That is the essence of Liberty Day, a constant evaluation of my delivery of the Liberty message. It expands policing while limiting citizens from deciding how they wish to be governed. We have a term for that in the libertarian community. We call it a police state. Welcome to episode 36 of the Liberty Dad podcast, where we prepare for tomorrow's political conversation by how we engage today. If you're new to the show, Liberty represents the message of all your freedom all the time. And Dad represents the delivery Recognizing tomorrow's conversation with my son is determined by how I engage with him today, and then applying that to those around me. I'm your host, DL, and this, is ep- this episode is The Experience of Being Experienced. This episode is part two of my series on race-related matters. Don't worry if you didn't listen to the last one. Each episode is independent of the other. However, to get the fullest context, I definitely recommend watching them all. In episode 34, I discuss hearing the voice of others as a matter of listening. For those who prefer a discussion-style episode, check out episode 35, where instead of just me, I'm joined by my co-host, Josh Fields, from the Libertarian Apothecary, as we discuss that same topic. This week, I discuss the experience of being experienced. What does that mean, you ask? Well, let's dive right in and find out. When we discuss politics, what can we learn from a former FBI hostage negotiator and an internationally known psychologist? I tell you what, I'm going to give you a few moments to think of an answer. I will be right back. Okay, do you have an answer? I do. But before we get into the answer in the last episode, season two, episode one, I said the following. To address the Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter issue, we need to go beyond those words and, in fact, ignore those words altogether because the root of the divide is much deeper. Ignoring the divide between words, Black Lives Matter, and All Lives Matter kind of sidesteps the issue. It was on purpose. The goal of the episode was to communicate listening by example. In this episode, let's take a look at the Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter dispute. At the beginning of this episode, I asked you what you could learn or what we could learn from an internationally known psychologist and a former FBI hostage negotiator. In a chapter titled Recipe for Rapport in his book, Social Intelligence, Daniel Goleman says this, Rapport feels good generating the harmonious glow of being simpatico, a sense of friendliness where each person feels the other's warmth, understanding, and genuineness. These mutual feelings of liking strengthen the bonds between them, no matter how temporary. That special connection always entails three elements, mutual attention, shared positive feeling, and a well-coordinated nonverbal duet. As these three arise in tandem, we catalyze rapport. Shared attention is the first essential ingredient. As two people attend to what the other says and does, they generate a sense of mutual interest, a joint focus that amounts to perceptual glue. Such two-way attention spurs shared feelings. One indicator of rapport is mutual empathy. Both partners experience being experienced. That's a lot. Feel free to go back and re-listen if you need. 
For this next part, I want you to take a moment and think about a memorable moment you've had with another person. Maybe it's a significant other, a sibling, a parent, friend, or whatever. I imagine you probably thought of more than one. I thought of two. Liberty Wife and I joke about our first, quote, date, which was an evening where we met for dinner, then a movie, and a wine tasting at her friend's house. At the time, we were not dating, but since then, I've declared it a retroactive date. Initially, I wasn't planning to go to the wine tasting, but because we saw Paranormal Activity 2 and horror films kind of spooked me, I changed my mind afterward. Because this was like 10 years ago, only two things stick out from that event. A Riesling in a blue bottle changed my perspective of wine, and we did a lot of snickering that night. I didn't know anyone other than my now wife, and she was friends with at least the hostess. That night, we laughed and giggled and snickered between ourselves throughout the entire evening. Contrast that with my second memorable experience, which is vastly different. Before I moved out on my own, sometime around the age of 20 or 21, my mother and I would stay up late watching television shows. We'd frequently engage in deep conversations about life and politics and religion, maybe some other things too. Sometimes we agreed and sometimes not, but we always enjoyed our conversations and left feeling positive about having had the conversation. These two experiences are both examples of the experience of being experienced, and yet they illustrate being experienced in two entirely different ways. The wine tasting was more temporary, our shared sense of being creating rapport in the moment, based on what was happening in the moment. Late night talks with my mother were more long-term and recurring. The wine tasting might be remembered as that one time, while the late night talks that I remember more like a fond memory of. Both are two people building a rapport through mutual attention, shared positive feeling, and that well-coordinated non-verbal duet that we heard about a few moments ago. Take those thoughts and consider the last exchange that you recall between two people regarding All Lives Matter and Black Lives Matter. Ask yourself, did that exchange sound like it was or was leading to people being experienced? What tends to happen is that people walk away from the conversation with no better understanding of the other's position or why they feel so drawn to it. No rapport gets created, and consequently no ground is gained for either side. And the same applies to those observing the conversation. Mother passed away in 2016 of recurring breast cancer that metastasized in her bones. I held very conservative views, as did she in my early 20s. She maintained those views while I moved from them on into libertarian views over roughly the last decade. We would frequently talk about those experiences very regularly, either on the phone or when I went to visit. Out of those exchanges, I developed what I like to call the mother test. Even though mother held firm to her conservative views, I relished the moments when she would say, well, okay, that's a fair point. It didn't mean she changed her views, but it was a signal that she heard what I was trying to communicate. Now think of the many exchanges you've seen with Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter, or any disagreement for that matter. 
how many do you recall came across as one or both participants really hearing the other's perspective? Recall this statement from social intelligence that I quoted earlier. As two people attend to what the other says and does, they generate a sense of mutual interest, joint focus that amounts to perceptual glue. Correcting someone who you believe is using the wrong word, all or black, to describe which lives matter is not generating a sense of mutual interest. It does not leave that person feeling that they've been experienced. That is the problem with the dispute between black lives matter and all lives matter, and it's equally shared between all parties. Same challenge exists with other commentary, such as telling someone they are speaking from white privilege or saying people should just follow police orders. It speaks at someone instead of engaging with them. So what is the solution? That's where our hostage negotiator comes into play. Chris Voss was a former FBI hostage negotiator and wrote the book Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It. He has a chapter titled Be a Mirror when he offers negotiating tips that I think fit very well with our everyday conversations. And if you're skeptical of learning lessons from hostage negotiation just to engage on the internet or with friends and family, I want you to consider the first excerpt from Voss's book. Here's what he said. Negotiation serves two distinct life, vital life functions, information gathering and behavior influencing, and includes almost any interaction where each party wants something from the other side. Negotiation, as you'll learn it here, is nothing more than communicating with results. Observing a myriad of conversations, last year's outbreaks of violence across the United States, and the storming of the Capitol, we could use some different results. Let's walk through Voss's six key lessons from the Be a Mirror chapter and see how we might get those different results. If we chose a single word to represent each of those key lessons, we get Prepare, open, discover, others, slow, and smile. Number one, prepare. A good negotiator prepares going in to be ready for possible surprises. When you see a comment on Facebook, Twitter, or elsewhere, you should always prepare yourself to be surprised. And you should always expect to be surprised. That doesn't mean you'll agree. It just means you anticipate learning something you didn't know about the person or their view. Number two, open. Don't commit to assumptions. Instead, view them as hypotheses and use the negotiation to test them rigorously. Too often, we assume we know everything we need to know about the person or their position. There's even a common phrase we've seen people repeat. This tells me everything I need to know about that person. It's necessary to remain open to realizing your assumptions may be wrong. We might find our assumptions were correct or incorrect, and we might find that they are one or the other for reasons we didn't realize. Number three, discover. Negotiation is not an act of battle. It's a process of discovery. The goal is to uncover as much information as possible. The more information you uncover, the more information you have to speak to the person. But more importantly, the more they feel they've actually been heard. Remember Daniel Goleman's comment in Social Intelligence about two people attending to what the other says and does? Everyone wants to be heard, and everyone wants to feel their opinion has value. 
While the process of discovery shouldn't be a series of 20 questions, it should make the other person feel like they are being experienced while you are learning more about who they are and why. Number four, others. To quiet the voices in your head, make your soul an all-encompassing focus, the other person and what they have to say. Have you ever seen that t-shirt or the picture that says, I have ADD, I'm not listening, I'm waiting for my turn to speak? Unfortunately, too many of us hear something that we don't like and immediately start thinking about our response. American novelist Truman Capote liked to claim he had over 90% memory recall of conversations. It's arguable whether or not his memory recall was that high but he was known to be really fascinated by those that he engaged with. Even if not over 90%, it was likely much higher than most simply because of his focus being on those that he spoke with and what they had to say. Number five, slow. Slow it down. If we're too much in a hurry, people can feel as if they're not being heard. You risk undermining the rapport and trust that you've built. Have you ever heard the saying, people don't remember what you say, they remember how you made them feel? Well, it's true. And rushing the conversation leaves others feeling unheard. And when someone doesn't feel heard, it really doesn't matter what great point we've made. I've accepted that rarely will someone's mind be changed in any single conversation. I like to think in terms of preparing for tomorrow's conversation today. Hence the tagline. If I'm to convince a person of a new idea and it takes multiple conversations to get there, I need to consider that each conversation builds on the last and is equally important. If I rush the first one, the person I am speaking with may not give me the opportunity to get to the conversation where they are finally convinced. Number six, smile. Put a smile on your face. When people are in a positive frame of mind, they think more quickly and are more likely to collaborate and problem solve instead of fight and resist. Think of those who have influenced you the most. How do you perceive their personalities? I'll bet dollars to low-carb donuts that you find them pleasant. There's always exceptions, but more often than not, we are drawn to those who simply are not jerks. And it may be hard to do. Some ideas are so distasteful, we might have serious trouble approaching the people who hold them with even the slightest pleasantness. But remember, you are engaging in a process of discovery. And you should be looking for the surprises that you are certain to find. And that is how we create the experience of being experienced. We think of each interaction as an opportunity to build rapport. We then use hostage negotiation tactics to build that rapport and influence people over time. We prepare ourselves to be surprised. Remain open to what we think we know. We treat the engagement as a process of discovery. Remember to focus on others. Slow down our desire to get to the end and remember to smile to keep ourselves in a positive frame of mind. The next time someone asserts something you vehemently oppose, recall these lessons. Change your approach from telling to learning. Doesn't mean you won't make any assertions because it's not a game of 20 questions. The goal is to ensure the other person feels experienced. And it isn't about just being nice. In fact, I'd say it isn't about being nice at all. It's about being productive. Or as Voss states, communication with results. I hope you found this episode's topic insightful. 
But for now, it's time for a bill review. But I know I'll be a law someday, at least I hope and pray that I will. But today I am still just a bill. I am not in any way a lawyer. What follows is not in any way legal advice and is not intended to speak in any authority on legal matters. I am only acting in the capacity of a general citizen with the ability to read and interpret a concatenation of words and render an opinion. The goal of bill reviews is to promote the idea that everyday Americans can and should take the time to read any legislation, order, or mandate. Since I am not a lawyer, this isn't a legal interpretation, and I may be wrong. Bills range from a page or two up to thousands of pages long. And since they can be rather dry, this segment is short and only meant to show you just how much you can learn in only a few minutes. Continuing with the theme of Black History Month, I'm going to focus on bills related to the black community. Last episode, I reviewed President Biden's Executive Order 13995, Ensuring an Equitable Pandemic Response and Recover. In this episode, we'll review a second Executive Order 13985, Advancing Racial Equity and Support for Underserved Communities Through the Federal Government. Ooh, that's a lengthy title. When evaluating any bill, executive order, or mandate from a government official, it's best to identify what its purpose is the action to be taken, and the measure of success. And sometimes, the title itself tells you a lot, though not always. For instance, in this executive order, we see that it ends with, quote, through the federal government. Well, immediately, I get the impression that whatever this executive order does will be limited to the federal government. Under Section 1, titled Policy, we find the purpose. Here's what it says. It is therefore the policy of my administration that the federal government should pursue a comprehensive approach to advancing equity for all, including people of color and others who have been historically underserved, marginalized, and adversely affected by persistent poverty and inequality. It's always good to be on the same page before disagreeing or even agreeing with any assertion. The executive order defines equity in section 2, stating this. The term equity means the consistent and systematic, fair, just, and impartial treatment of all individuals. Then goes on to clarify the following. Including individuals who belong to underserved communities that have been denied such treatment, such as Black, Latino, and Indigenous and Native American persons, Asian Americans, and Pacific Islanders, and other persons of color, members of religious minorities, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer LGBTQ plus persons, persons with disabilities, persons who live in rural areas, and persons otherwise adversely affected by persistent poverty or inequality. Liberty Wife will tell you I have a penchant for being a stickler with words, sometimes annoyingly so. Three things stick out. Of the included individuals in Section 2, it specifies a list of communities that have been denied such treatment. Remember, this executive order explicitly states through the federal government. And in the purpose, President Biden states the policy of his administration is that the federal government should pursue. My first question is, are these communities still being denied? However, if the answer is no, then we must ask, why the executive order is even necessary. Let's assume the fact Biden wrote the executive order that the answer is yes. Then we have to ask why and who is to blame. One might point to President Trump, but that doesn't make any sense because I don't recall anyone saying 
previous existing equity was rolled back under his administration. Aside from the things that President Trump said, much of what he did wasn't new to the office of the president. Which leads to the next question. What about the administration prior to Trump? After all, now President Biden was once then Vice President Biden. The reason I ask these questions is that I want to understand the purpose, the necessity of this order. And since many people in office switch positions and have long political careers, it's good to know if proposed legislation, executive orders, and other government decrees are just paying lip service or are intent to really make our lives better. Already, I'm unclear where and how long the issue identified in this executive order is present, or who might be to blame. But, setting that aside, what action does this executive order take? Under Section 4, Identifying Methods to Assess Equity, here's what it says. The Director of the Office of Management and Budget, OMB, shall, in partnership with the heads of agencies, study methods for assessing whether agency policies and actions create or exacerbate barriers to full and equal participation by all eligible individuals. Ben goes on to say, As part of this study, the director of OMB shall consider whether to recommend that agencies employ pilot programs to test model assessment tools and assist agencies in doing so. This executive order does give some timelines as well. Within six months of its date, the director of the OMB is supposed to give a report to the president of best practices found and then recommend approaches to expanding them to the rest of the federal government. And the head of each agency is 200 days to review and provide a report to their or of their agency's practices to, quote, assess whether underserved communities and their members face system, systematic barriers in accessing benefits and opportunities. In the last episode, I pointed out that the executive order also proposed a study to see if issues existed. And like that executive order, this one appears to assert a problem exists in the beginning, but then spell out a study is necessary to see if and where. A simple reading suggests this executive order, like the one in the last episode, is simply a fact-finding mission. President Joe Biden has held numerous offices starting his political career in 1973. He served as a U.S. Senator, Vice President, and served on multiple Senate committees over his 47 years. This leads me to my real question. How is it in 47 years of political office in positions that have given him ample view of the federal government's action? How is it that his executive order has to create groups and order studies to see if systemic barriers exist for members of various underserved communities. I've spent much less time in various businesses and was able to more specifically identify areas where improvement was necessary and often had ideas how to tackle those issues. And I've met others who were able to do likewise. America, when you start really looking into the things that government officials do, I think you'll start finding more legislation, executive orders, and mandates that are no more than fact-finding missions or some other fluff. And further, I think you'll find they rarely end up benefiting us everyday people. If we are to support any mandate from government officials, it should only be that which has a very clear purpose 
sound, and supporting action and measurable goals that we can judge the merits of later. This executive order on advancing racial equity and support for underserved communities does not accomplish any of those. That's all for this week. Find other episodes at LibertyDad.com and archived video episodes at YouTube.LibertyDad.com or watch shows when they air at Facebook.com forward slash Free Speech Media Network with me on Monday night at 10 p.m. or join Josh Fields from the Libertarian Apothecary and me Friday night at 11 p.m. for a discussion style of the same topic. You can also connect with me at Liberty Dad on Facebook, Liberty Dad Pod on Twitter, or email to LibertyDadPodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Remember, if you're a champion of liberty, your business is people, and your product is liberty. Have a great week. Catch you next time, and I'm out.